I want to begin today with a name. How many of you are familiar with the name W.L. George? W.L. George. So if you find yourself struggling to recall who W.L. was, I don't want you to feel bad. You are actually in great company. Here's why. He lived a long time ago in England, to be precise, uh, during the early 1900s. And while he was a great author, what he became most well-known for was his penchant for prediction. To be precise, W.L. George went out on a limb, choosing to set in place his predictions for the year. Are you ready for this? For the year 2022, the year we are just about to finish. When he made these predictions, the year was actually 1922. That's 100 years ago. So, would you like to hear a few? In 1922, W.L. George predicted that, number one, by the year 2022, commercial airlines would be commonplace with aircraft capable of flying from London to New York in 12 hours. Now, remember uh, that the Wright brothers were only successful in getting their bi-winged plane to fly in the year 1903, just 19 years prior to this prediction. And, and by the way, the actual flight time today between New York and London is eight hours and six minutes. I don't know about you. I think W.L. did pretty well with that prediction. How about, how about this one? W.L. predicted that people living in the year 2022 would live in a world of wireless telephones. Think about that. We, we, didn't, we didn't actually have iPhones until the year 2007. How, how did W.L. know? He predicted, number three, that fuel shortages would become a problem by the year 2022. Wow, seriously. He noted that though coal would become a problem, more use of power generated by the sun and wind would become prominent. That's amazing to me. One more. W.L. predicted that in 2022, Congress would see a large number of women serving, with many serving even the president's cabinet. Now, remember, the first woman to serve Congress did not do so until the year 1917. I read through these things, and I think, man, wow, how did he know? These predictions took me back to a moment in my own life. The year was 1976. Our country was celebrating the bicentennial across America. Uh, It kind of had become popular to create something called, remember this, a time capsule, into which people would place artifacts from the current and prevailing culture. The idea was kind of simple. Let's put artifacts into this capsule. They're going to remain buried for the next 100 years. And when people dig them up, they will no doubt laughingly get to look at how we lived in 1976, while at the same time comparing such to life in 2076 and looking ahead to the year 30. 76, just wondering, what will life be like then? Can I ask you something? Can you even imagine life in the year 30, 76? I pray Jesus comes before then, but should we make it to 30, 76? What would would cars look like? What would they be powered by? Will homes look the way that they do today? Will people be able to travel from London to New York in one hour or less? What will our wireless phones have been replaced by? And let me add one more. What will the church look like then? Honestly, I find it fascinating to look ahead. It's interesting 
to watch for clues and trends that make up life today, trends that point us forward to what the future might look like. But in the end, I think we all know something. We know that were we to set our minds towards establishing our own predictions for the future, so I'm, I'm going to speak for myself here. I'm not so sure I would do as well as W.L. George. Honestly, his predictive skills, or if I can say it more appropriately, his ability to anticipate how trends present in his times might manifest themselves over a hundred-year period. It was nothing short of amazing. You see, we predict, but God knows all that lay ahead, which is what makes our topic for God's eyes living so interesting today. Uh, in our time together, I want to return to chapter 9 in the book of Daniel. Prior to Thanksgiving, we, we were, we have been looking at how God used a prayer spoken through Daniel to bring hope to the people of Israel. Today, I want to move past that prayer into words from God to Daniel relative to the future. Now, it doesn't happen often in scriptures, but when God allows men to look into the future, usually through prophetic language, two things are true. One, his, his words are always verified. Men, men may predict, but God provides prophetic insight. There's a big difference between the two. Secondly, when God gives men a glimpse into the future, his intent, I think this is important, is always kingdom focused. In other words, while the predictions of men are usually about trends and things, God's prophetic words are always and only about one thing, the kingdom of God, a kingdom that will remain in eternity. And that's exactly what I believe we're going to see today as God gives Daniel a snapshot of the future that's meant to teach Israel some needed truths about what it means to be the church, even in the midst of difficult times. So I want to ask the question this way. If we were living in Daniel's time and we could dig up a time capsule that would catapult us 500 years into the future, what would be inside the capsule and what difference would it make? So let me tell you that uh, one of the things that kind of got me thinking about our topic today is a book written by an economist named Thomas L. Friedman. The title of the book is Thank You for Being Late. I don't know how familiar you are with Friedman, but I, I always have loved his future focus. Uh, he's a professor at John Hopkins University, prolific author, pr probably best known for, for a book, maybe you'll remember this, titled The World is Flat, somewhat of a macro view of the economies that make up our world today. But I, but I actually found this, this book, Thank You for Being Late, to be thought-provoking. In it, Friedman looks at the rapid changes that consistently challenge economic systems, along with technological advances, inclusive of AI, the impacts of such on all of our lives. The author analyzes and extrapolates into the future, but he remains consistently optimistic about the capacity our country, America, has for growth in almost every industry and industry segment, while at the same time pointing to specific challenges that our country is facing and will in greater measure face from growing global nations. Uh, reading this book, I couldn't help but find myself early did thinking forward to the challenges that Friedman identifies and just really recognizing the reality that about the time a person thinks, you know what, we, we've got a handle on these challenges. 
you know, another challenge erupts, often more viral than the former. Pointedly, you begin to recognize that while it's good, it is good to pay attention to trends at both the macro and micro level. In the end, we as human beings ultimately have very few predictive powers, but God does. And I think this is where we meet Daniel in the ninth chapter as his prayer comes to an end and God begins to speak into him. I want you to think about this very simply. Excuse me. There are times when God, by design, pulls back the curtain that separates our mortal minds from knowing God's future moments. And what he does is it's always his intention to show us something that prepares us to receive what he is accomplishing. He wants us to recognize his hand at work within history towards accomplishing his story. So let's, let's jump back over to chapter 9 and just listen to the way that God begins his monologue in Daniel's hearing. I'm going to read uh, chapter 9 beginning at verse 24. I really do want to pray today for God's guidance through this word. I believe it does contain at least a seminal thought that is relevant to the church and to our lives right now. So let's pray. Lord, did you just give us insight as we open up this word, hear it today. Lord, in some small way, use it to challenge each one of us to look into our own lives, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's let's read the words. Beginning verse 24, God starts, quote, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood, even to the end that there will be war and desolations are determined. End quote. Okay, so when, when you first read this section of scripture, there's little doubt in my mind, but that your, your eyes and, and your ears are caught up in the numbers that are being offered up here. Uh, just think about the numbers with me again. Uh, Jesus is telling Daniel, God is telling Daniel, there are 70 weeks, and then there are seven weeks, and then there are 62 weeks. And, and the question that arises is, are, are these really just weeks that are coming? Are, are, are these numbers meant to be read literally? Are they literal weeks? How, how am I to read the numbers in this section of Scripture? Of course, the answer lie, I believe, in the issue of genre. Genre, of course, representing the form of literature being spoken or read. And, and while Daniel, as a book, is for the most part historical narrative, it is, and we read it as such, there are times within Daniel's historical narrative that God or an angel, a messenger from God, will interrupt history and we'll interrupt historical narrative with what we call apocalyptic or symbolic language, language that points to physical or chronological realities, but that 
in and of itself is symbolic in nature. And I think that's the case in this instance. God is speaking to Daniel. He's giving him numbers that, that will, will represent very real periods of time, but the numbers are in and of themselves symbolic. So, so when the section begins, what God is identifying for, for Daniel is the fact that 70 years have passed since Israel has been taken into captivity in Babylon, uh, the purpose of which has been kingdom-oriented. Bluntly, Israel had fallen away from their call. They were no longer serving God as bearers of the gospel to the world. Instead of being outward-facing, the Israelites had oppositely become inward-facing, caring more about themselves than the world around them. And God was intent on changing this. So what, what has God been doing? He's been refining Israel through a period of captivity in Babylon. Thus, when our scripture says 70 weeks have been decreed, for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Well, what God is saying is, hey, Daniel, after 70 years, the refining that I've been doing amongst the people of Israel is complete. It's time for Israel to go home. And it's time for the temple, that most holy place, to be rebuilt. This then begins the 62-week period that God speaks to Daniel about. Again, not necessarily a literal 62-week period, but an identifiable period of time filled with restoration. So when you look back at history, here's how the 62 weeks play out. The period actually begins in 445 BC and will take us to the birth of Jesus in 2 or 3 BC. It's a period of history marked by the return of Ezra and Nehemiah to Jerusalem, along with the rebuilding of the temple and the city walls. This period, the 62 weeks, includes the birth of Jesus and leads us all the way up to his crucifixion. And then it pushes us past the crucifixion, all the way up to 70 AD, when the Roman emperor's son, Titus, will destroy the temple and subdue Israel. Now, here's the question. Why, why is Jesus setting this grand sweep of history in front of Daniel? What's the message being conveyed by doing so? And here's where I want you to pay attention to one particular detail. The temple. Remember what's going on. For 70 years, Israel has been in exile. For 70 years, the temple, that which is given the nation and identity, has been lying in a heap on the ground. Now it will be rebuilt. So let me ask you this. When the temple is rebuilt, when Ezra goes in and the temple is rebuilt and Nehemiah goes in and the, the walls of Jerusalem are rebuilt, the homes are rebuilt, when all that happens, what, what is the tendency of man? I want to use a term here. I think you'll identify with it. The term is homeostasis. Simply defined, the term means to keep things the way they always have been. I want you to notice some irony. God allowed the temple, that which had been giving the Jews their identity, to intentionally and purposely be destroyed in order to do what? To challenge Israel to find their identity, not in a building, but in him. Hey, Israel, I'm going to let the temple be torn down, and you're going to cry 
and you're gonna you're going to to say God, you've abandoned us, but I haven't. I'm trying to teach you. You've been putting your your identity in a building, and it's not. It should be in me. Pointedly, God's trying to change Israel. He's trying to strengthen them. But when the temple is rebuilt, what will Israel do? They come back to the word. The word is homeostasis. They will try to put things back to the way that things were before. In other words, instead of living as changed people, they'll actually go back to their old ways. They'll make the temple their identity again. By the time Jesus is born, where does he go? When he finds himself at the temple, to the tables that need to be flipped upside down in order to reveal once again to Israel, Israel, you've lost that sense of calling. Again, repeatedly, you turned the building into the mission. It's not. People are the mission. So what does God do? He reveals this to Daniel. In fact, he reveals the fact that in the end, even though he allows the temple to be restored in its present day, in Daniel's day, he will have to have the temple destroyed again, this time by Titus in 70 AD. Here's the bottom line. God wants man to find their identity in him. However, it's easier to find our identity in buildings, in ministry programs, and what it means to be the church in our world today. And you know what? I don't know about you, but I find that message to be highly relevant today at both the personal and corporate level. So let me do this. Let me start at the corporate level. Over the last several years, I believe many of us in the church have come to recognize that one of the things God's been doing through the process of of COVID, through the process of change, social change, is challenging the church in our world today to get out of the building and into the world. And you know what? For a time, COVID actually forced that. There's a period of time where churches were closed. You, you, You couldn't do church the way you had always done it before. In fact, by and large, church leaders around the globe had to come back to the mission of the church, to the reason for being church. New ideas began to be birthed, lifted up. New efforts were made. If we can't gather in in buildings, does that mean we stop being church? No. Churches encourage people to gather online, to hold watch parties with friends and neighbors, to invite people who, who never had been in a church building to intentionally come and be a part of something that was a movement within God's movement. Personally, I really did. I got to see some creative things happen in ministries across the globe during that period of time that we mark as COVID-related. Then, as quickly as it came, COVID recessed. Now, let me ask you an important question. As COVID recessed, how did the church respond? Did it carry forward lessons and creative advances that were made during that time that it could not physically gather? I'm going to be honest, I want to say yes with everything in me. You know what, COVID recessed and the church, having learned new lessons, carried these lessons forward. But you you know what? I don't think so. I really don't. Unfortunately, here's what I see. The church simply has gone back to what it did before. Homeostasis has such a strong pull. It does in the church. It does in our lives as well. I want you to think about this at a personal level. So I'm going to close with a couple of questions. And and I'm going to pray that these actually stir you up a little bit. Here, Here they are. Question number one. Has there ever been a time in your life where God has so thoroughly disrupted you 
that you literally could not go back to doing things the same way that you had been doing them before. I was thinking about this. I talked to a man going through a divorce recently. And you know what? It shattered him. At first, he was angry with God. He was angry with his, his ex-wife. But as time went on, you know what happened? He started looking at himself. And he began to realize that it wasn't all her. And certainly, it wasn't just a God being capricious. He realized, I, I, need, I needed to make changes. And he began to do that. He didn't just go back to church. He began to recognize, I, I have to live as church. He, he allowed the word to begin to consume him. I watched him begin to serve other people. It was really something to watch. But did it last? Let's me to the second question. Here's the second question. In your life, when the disruption ended, were you changed? Or did you go back to what was before? I'm going to continue my example because it's so real. This gentleman who went through the divorce, he really was changed for a while. But over time, he slid back. Eventually, he met a young lady, began dating. I remember when they got married. She's marrying a new man. You you are marrying a new man. But, but was he a new man? I think you know how the story goes. He did change for a bit. But slowly and surely, he slid back into his old habits until the day came, until she, this second wife, told him, I I want a divorce. And he realized it. I remember him saying, what happened? I I don't want to leave you hanging. There is some good news in this story. He he really was able to reconcile his second marriage and to recognize, I I have to make changes that will last. Not not changes based upon a a whim or or short-lived, but changes based based upon faith and upon the admission, God, I need you to change me. Which leads me to the last question. I want you to really think about this this week. Where do you right now need to come before God with an honest admission? God, I need you. You've tried to change me. I've changed for a little bit, but here's the truth. I went back, back to the same behavior, back to the same hidden sin, back to the same habits. I'm stuck. Lord, would you change me because I cannot change myself? Where is that in your life? I really believe that's what God is doing here for Daniel, for Israel. I believe that for them, better times would come. They'll go home and they'll rebuild. But what God wants Daniel to see is how easy it is for people to fall back into the same habits and patterns that desperately need to change. My prayer is that we're able to see it too. In our churches, and in our own lives. That's it for today. I, I'm going to pray for you, and I, I'm just going to ask that, Lord, just send your blessing upon the families who are listening to this podcast. I also want to ask you for your prayers for myself and our family. Uh, I, I welcome you back. This is uh, our first time back after Thanksgiving, and uh, we'll be back next week. So until next week, I'm just going to wish you to have a God-sized week.